Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is October 17, 2021, and I'm your host, James Myers. I'm so glad to have here today participants from the Toronto Philosophy and Calgary Philosophy Meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are joining for the, for the first time, whether you have experience with Plato's works or are new to them, all are encouraged to add your voice to our dialogue. I'll begin by introducing one of the key themes from today's reading selection, which covers part of Book 2 of the Republic, in passages from Stephanus' reference 357a to 376c. Then I will invite participants to exchange ideas as they wish, and as they do so, I will briefly summarize and try to connect different ideas and perspectives for further consideration. I've suggested three themes to focus our discussion today, which I have posted on the shared drive that is linked to the meetup.com event notice. We can go in any direction the group chooses, but for everyone's benefit, I would ask that you relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text that we are discussing. I would ask participants to use the raise hands feature in Zoom. Using your first name as it appears on your screen profile, I will call on you to speak in the order that hands are raised, giving precedence to those who haven't spoken. After we have finished recording in two hours, I invite any participants who wish to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. So in our last episode, we introduced the Republic by discussing a selection from books six and seven that included Plato's famous allegory of the cave, simile of the sun, divided line of knowledge, and the nature of good. Today's reading, which is nearer the beginning of the Republic, was chosen in particular for its connections to the allegory of the cave and the nature of the good. It was also chosen for several key principles that we can keep in mind in our future discussions on other sections of the Republic. These principles will be especially important to our next episode in two weeks, in which we'll examine more of the Republic with passages from 412b to 445e. This upcoming reading includes what is commonly referred to as the noble lie, and we can consider whether Socrates advocates for the use of such a lie in all cities. So I want to say here a few words uh, about our approach to the Republic, which at 220 printed pages is among the longest of Plato's works. Many studies of the Republic approach it in the same order as each of its books one through 10, but covering each book in order and with sufficient detail to do justice to the entire work would take us an entire season or more. So instead, to allow us to begin discussing Parmenides and one or two of Plato's other dialogues this season, and to tie their themes to the Republic and the other dialogues that we read in season one, I thought we would aim to highlight perhaps the most important sections in the Republic. I think this different perspective on the Republic might add some value to the more traditional sequential approach. In fact, in today's readings, we might consider some possible connections between the allegory of the cave that we discussed in our last episode to the theoretical city that Socrates, Glaucon, and Adamantus begin to create in Book 2. These are connections we might not otherwise pick up on from a sequential reading. There is still much benefit to be had from a sequential reading of the Republic. For those who would like to pursue that perspective, in addition to our approach here on Plato's Pod, I would suggest listening to the always illuminating and insightful podcast, Ancient Greece Declassified, by my friend Dr. Lantern Jack, who is currently featuring an ongoing examination of the Republic. I thought we might start today's discussion with a few paragraphs from 365D to 366D, which begin to get the, at the heart of the goal of the Republic, which is to discover the nature of justice. In this part of the dialogue, Glaucon restates with greater eloquence the argument of Thrasymachus that preceded in Book 1. 
In Book 1, Thrasymachus argued that justice is that which is to the benefit and profit of the powerful. Problems with this argument are perhaps quite clear to see, but today we can consider the more nuanced positions put forward by Glaucon for his friends to examine. Glaucon says that he does not endorse these positions, but that in addressing them, they will be better equipped to find what justice is in itself, without reference to outcomes that one might judge good or otherwise. Accepting Glaucon's reasoned approach, Socrates proposes they investigate first, quote, what sort of thing justice is in a city, and afterwards look for it in the individual, observing the ways in which the smaller is similar to the larger. Socrates goes on to ask, if we could watch a city coming to be in theory, wouldn't we also see its justice coming to be, and its injustice as well? So let's drop into the dialogue at 365d, in which Adamantus is amplifying the case that his brother Glaucon has set out, that an unjust person can maintain the appearance of justice. And here we might think of the prisoner in the cave that we discussed last time, staring at reflections and thinking them to be reality. Adamantus ends here with a question that confronts us all in many decisions, which is, why choose justice? So let me just share the screen here. And I've got this reading here for us. Uh, and I don't know if somebody would like to read this or I can, I can read this uh, section. It's about uh, four paragraphs. If there's any volunteers to read this. All right, well, why don't I read it then? So again, this is 365D to, to 366D. And this is Adamantus speaking. But surely, someone will object, it isn't easy for vice to remain always hidden. We'll reply that nothing great is easy. And in any case, if we're to be happy, we must follow the path indicated in these accounts. To remain undiscovered, we'll form secret societies and political clubs. And there are teachers of persuasion to make us clever in dealing with assemblies and law courts. Therefore, using persuasion in one place and force in another, we'll outdo others without paying a penalty. What about the gods? Surely we can't hide from them or use violent force against them. Well, if the gods don't exist or don't concern themselves with human affairs, why should we worry at all about hiding from them? If they do exist and do concern themselves with us, we've learned all we know about them from the laws and the poets who give their genealogies. Nowhere else. But these are the very people who tell us that the gods can be persuaded and influenced by sacrifices, gentle prayers, and offerings. Hence, we should believe them on both matters or neither. If we believe them, we should be unjust and offer sacrifices from the fruits of our injustice. If we are just, our only gain is not to be punished by the gods, since we lose the profits of injustice. But if we are unjust, we get the profits of our crimes and transgressions and afterwards persuade the gods by prayer and escape without punishment. But in Hades, won't we pay the penalty for crimes committed here, either ourselves or our children's children? My friend, the young man will say as he does his calculation, mystery rites and the gods of absolution have great power. The greatest cities tell us this, as do the ch those children of the gods who have become poets and prophets. Why then should we still choose justice over the greatest injustice? Many eminent authorities agree that if we practice such injustice with a false facade, we'll do well at the hands of the gods and humans, living and dying as we've a mind to. So, given all that has been said, Socrates, how is it possible for anyone of any power, whether of mind, wealth, body, or birth, to be willing to honor justice and not laugh aloud when he hears it praised. I'd just like to open it up for discussion about this particular part. And, you know, here again, Adamantus has made this, this proposition, not that he or Glaucon, who are building these arguments, believe in them, but they're trying to 
to establish what justice is by looking at, in this case, the most extreme of injustice to see if they can find the contrast between justice and injustice. And I'm just wondering what people think about, uh, you know, maybe some of the, the relevance maybe of some of this to, to today's world. And, uh, you know, if, if those who know how the Republic turns out with Plato or, or with Socrates looking at different types of political organizations like democracy and autocracy and, uh, you know, that, that kind of form, you know, it just occurred to me, you know, this one particular part at the beginning, you know, where, where, uh, you know, Adamantus says to remain undiscovered, to, to, to keep our injustice hidden, we'll form secret societies and political clubs. Um, that's something that had a little bit of resonance for me when I read it to, to, you know, current situations, or I can think of people or organizations that behave that way. Um, I'm just wondering in general what, what people think and, and, you know, did you, when you read the text, if you read the text, uh, I'm thinking particularly at uh, around 358, um, Glaucon kind of sets out the three main headings of these arguments that he's going to, uh, that he's going to pursue. Uh, he's, he's kind of restating this bold assertion that Thrasymachus made uh, in book one that uh, injustice is really profitable and injustice really is what the what the powerful say it is um, but here Glaucon and Adamantus have made a much more nuanced argument and so Adam uh, Glaucon outlines the beginnings of his argument at 3 358c with kind of three things that he wants to uh, pursue. You know, first he says he wants to discover what justice is and what its origins are. And then he raises the prospect or the, the proposition that the practice, practitioners of justice are unwilling to do so for the sake of justice alone, that they only uh, pursue justice for its outcomes. And then he ends by saying he's going to make an argument that the unjust life is better than the just life. And so I'm wondering what, what people think about this. Is this, you know, do, do we see any kind of, uh, you know, ideas here that uh, relate to today or any, any conceptions of our normal approach to justice and injustice? Bill, did you have any thoughts on that? Did you want to say something or, or, sh or should, we review the, should we review the arguments that Glaucon made at 358, um, 358C? or at least the, the headings that he puts at 358C. We'll go to Moshe, Moshe first. Moshe, welcome. How you doing? Hi, good, thanks. Uh, I was curious when I was reading this section of the dialogue to the number of pages that Plato devotes to this idea that living the unjust life is valuable. Uh, valuable, uh, not in the sense that it's um, morally valuable, uh, but value in the sense that it's monetarily valuable or you gain um, uh, social status or you have um, uh, you have good relations with your neighbors and you can get things done uh, in your own way. And he gives a great deal. It, it, it appears, I mean, he's giving a great deal of prose to this as opposed to the dialogue, which takes place in the latter part of the reading where Socrates and, and uh, uh, Adamantus, who is who are describing the ideal city, Adamantus, who's describing the real city. Um, 
this prose in some ways seems to be very persuasive. And um, why would a person want to do something else after all you can say, well, Plato said thus and such? Well, thank you. And I think that's the key question. And uh, I think it's a question that um, is based on this assumption that Glaucon sets out in uh, um, in three or starts to set out in uh, 358C. Uh, and I think it's this assumption that we would all naturally want to be unjust if we could get away with it. And it's perhaps maybe one way that we can approach the Republic is, you know, some people see the Republic as a political commentary. Some see it as an ethical commentary. Some see it as a kind of psychological commentary. You know, is our psychology uh, set in a way, for example, that we are naturally driven to injustice if we could get away with it? And in fact, uh, you know, I wanted maybe we could discuss that bit at. Um, uh, starting at 359D that goes to 360D, that whole ring of Gyges um, comparison that, uh, that um, Glaucon talks about, you know, that if, if we had this ring that could make us invisible, we would be naturally inclined to use it to do things that are unjust. Uh, and so maybe that's something that, you know, is, is that the case? Are we naturally inclined to injustice? Bill, your thoughts? Yes, uh, what came to mind was, uh, yes, I see a resonance in what's happening today, especially with politicians. You know, they, they, they often say what the, what, the, um, what the electorate really wants to hear, but they don't believe it. <laughs> they don't do anything about it. Um, but what came to mind was, you know, how long can one keep up the charade for? It may last for a little while, but eventually, it won't be believed because their actions will will show the uh, the truth. Interesting idea that actions speak louder than words. Yes, and what does it say about our society? You know, what what is the result of our society at large when you know when people perpetrate injustice on an ongoing basis, willy nilly like that? It just breaks it down, breaks down our society mm -hmm. over time. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good point. I think this is something, you know, Bill, that, uh, you know, it, it's a good way, I think, of looking at the, the Republic, you know, they, as they try to construct this theoretical society, can it be sustained? Can it sustain itself? You know, I actually, in, our, in the next section that we'll read, uh, where, you know, Socrates is talking about creating this, this society, you know, it's all based on the assumption, the reason that we create societies is based on the assumption that none of us is self-sufficient and societies have to get together uh, and, and do things together in common in order to function. And as you say, you know, how long can this be sustained? I think that's a, a really good question. Stephanie, your thoughts? Yeah, I just had a comment on the idea that if we could put on a ring, make us invisible um, and get away with it, we all maybe would do unjust acts. Um, but who defines what is unjust? And I think that's where relating to today, where a lot of conflict is happening, um, groups have different ideas of what is just or unjust and what is right or wrong. Um, so I think that's where a lot of the strife comes from today. I'm curious if anyone has thoughts to elaborate on that. 
Thank you. Yes, and certainly the definition of justice is the key. And and you know, Glaucon starts this off really by saying that uh, he says, "I've yet to hear anyone defend justice in the way I want, proving that it is better than injustice. I want to hear it praised by itself." You know, so if you were to isolate justice on its own and not look at its outcomes, how would you define it? How would you praise it? So that's a good question, and and you put a good challenge to the to the group. So let's see what. What others have to say, uh, Moshe? Your thoughts? Okay, I'm going to give uh, attempt to answer your question, but then I want to go into something uh, related, and that is that the reward for justice is justice itself, and you do it for no other reason, not because you're going to get a million dollars or because, um, uh, or because you're going to get praise from your friends or uh, you know, like Achilles, you're going to be remembered well. Uh, I, I remember reading, you know, when Hume is talking in the, you know, his discussion on human nature, he says nothing feels so good as to as to observe a, a, a virtuous act. Okay, and so we we derive we derive pleasure from um, doing justice because of justice itself. So that's my attempt at, at answering your question. But I want to go to another thing related to the Ring of Gyges, which you brought up. Uh, and that is that I often start, when I teach a class on, on existentialism, by quoting the first line of uh, Aristotle's metaphysics, uh, that every man, by his nature, desires to know. And I challenge that by saying, and, and I think this is a very good point, that man doesn't have a nature. Um, we have equal arguments to say that justice is good and it's good in itself, and justice is just um, is, is just a ploy or a show uh, to put up to people so that we can do whatever it is that, that we want to do. And so, if we take the ring of Gyges, I think we have. Uh, I, I, I'm not a statistician. I don't think this is an empirical question, but I do think that you have. Uh, equal an opportunity to find somebody who, who would want to do good as opposed to somebody who, who would not. And if we take the example that was given uh, when Socrates is asked to talk about the, uh, you know, talk about justice itself, and he's talking about the eye chart, you know, and well, you know, suppose we could find something uh, larger and then look at that and then take it back to the smaller question about justice. Uh, they start taking a look at the, at the city state. And today, because you brought that in, um, you know, the world is, um, I'll use some of my continental language, uh, screwed up in so many ways that if I was, um, uh, if, if I had an invisibility ring, uh, I could go over to the Taliban and, I, and the and ISIS and I could take their guns away from them and say, look, uh, guys and gals, you've got to talk things out. And you could go to the um, to the nuclear forces and and, and put um, duct tape over the uh, over the buttons for the uh, for the bombs and uh, you could go into uh, Washington. Um, there you might have a bigger problem because those people are all insane, but you could do good things if you had that. And I think that it's um, uh, it's a question of who the individual is. I don't think there's any nature there's I don't think there's any innate nature to man that drives you in one way or the other. And, and that's a that's a perspective, I I understand, and I, I think 
I think we can all hope that that's the case. And certainly, I think we know people who um, who would be just, you know, if they were given such power that they would not abuse it uh, for sure. Uh, maybe they're talking about, you know, general human behavior. And I'm just looking at this, uh, it's at 360C, where, uh, where Glaucon says that if a just person were given the ring, he might do all the other things that would make him like a god among humans. And then that would put him on the same path as the unjust person. And so... Um, yeah, I guess it is a question, as you said, if, you know, are people more likely to take the, the route of doing the right thing? Or are they, you know, as Glaucon is saying, uh, in this setting up this debate, uh, or are they more likely to, to take the, the wrong route or, or the route that leads away from justice? And then I think this goes back to the question that Stephanie raised is, you know, what is justice in and of itself, which is, I think, really what they're trying to find here. Um, so thank you for that. And we'll go to Nuri and then to Jose J and Jose G. So Nuri, welcome. Oh, Nuri has disappeared from the list. I think she'll be signing back on. Yeah, yeah. Th thank you. Uh, oh, James. there you are. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so fast forward to, to where we are now. Um, there was a study done where, you know, just, just a simple honor system where people had to pay money, put it in a box, and they found that many didn't pay. So they went on and then they put a picture next to the box. And surprisingly, more people paid for some reason. So it's very interesting. We, we, we will do unjust if we could get away with it. Are we wired that way? I, I'm not sure. Maybe we are. And, uh, and and in today's uh, society, we, we have something where, um, you know, the penalty for doing unjust, uh, we, we try because of the rule of law to fit the crime. So people are given, uh, given uh, for their crime there, it, it's, it's, uh, it's measured, you know, if you do something really bad, well, then you are going to be punished more. So that's, that's our rule of law as we have it today. Thanks. Thank you for that. And maybe, you know, this idea of perhaps shame, you know, this, this idea of uh, we can shame each other into, into being just, you know, by calling out those who we think aren't just, uh, but then that puts us into the role of judgment, I guess. And, um, you raise the, the, the kind of idea that uh, it's one of the first arguments that Glaucon presents, which is at 359A to B, which is that, uh, you know, again, he's building on this idea that we're naturally unjust. And um, he presents the idea that, you know, is justice, in fact, better than the worst, but not as good as the best. And the worst, he says, uh, you know, is to suffer injust injustice without being able to exact revenge to those who have caused this injustice. And the best, you know, if we are naturally wired to be un in unjust, the best is to be unjust and not pay the penalty. And so, you know, he presents this interesting idea at, at 359A to B, that justice kind of intermediates the, the best and the worst. So justice <clears throat> is the is the mean between two extremes is the word that's that's used. And is that the case? You know, is justice not 
perfect is justice kind of a compromise between the best and the worst and so i think you you let us into that discussion perhaps and so so thank you for that and we'll go to jose j your thoughts jose hey james yes uh, following up with uh, stephanie question about the the is is about uh, who defines justice uh, there is something interesting here that uh, uh, in the book one, Tresamacus, he says that uh, justice is whatever the powerful define in their interest. So uh, it's implying that uh, he says that there's different laws and different justice in different societies. So what he's implying there is that uh, he's implying that the relativism in, uh, of justice is that justice is whatever is good for, for societies. And well, in this case, by the powerful. But Plato, I, I think he's implying that justice is universal, that it's, a, it's, an absolute, it's an absolute truth for everybody. So there is this, um, I think this is a discussion that uh, we can have because uh, still there are philosophers discussing, arguing about uh, if virtues or, sorry, moral values like justice and everything, they are universal or they are society to society. In, indeed, Jose, and I think that's the, um, I think you put it in an interesting way or with an interesting perspective about universality um, and this idea again of justice in itself without reference to anything else, without any sort of relativity, is there something that we can call justice itself? You know, so that's again, this definition of justice that Stephanie uh, raised at the beginning and and that I think is our challenge to find and it becomes their challenge in the Republic to find whether justice in itself uh, exists. And so universality, I think, is an interesting way of putting it. So thank you for that. Uh, we'll go to Jose, Jose G. Hi, James. Hi. Can you hear me okay? I can, yes. Okay, because I'm, I'm in my car here, so I'm not sure about the, uh, yeah. the audio. Um, a couple of things. Um, first of all, obviously, the natural tendency is to to try to, to ask ourselves, so, so what is justice, right? We're discussing about justice. And if I remember correctly, uh, that's what takes all the remaining uh, eight books of the Republic to try to define. So maybe it's premature to try to understand what uh, Plato is, is trying to define as justice right now. Um, then the thing that caught my attention was this. As I was reading this, it's not the first time, but every time you read it, you get something else. And I was thinking about why did Socrates choose to define uh, um, the ideal city uh, before entering the discussion on justice? So the only argument he makes there is, well, the larger is better than the smaller kind of thing. If I remember correctly, I don't have the book with me. But then when you think about it, if there was a, um, a, a planet with only one individual, the concept of justice would be kind of meaningless. So therefore, justice is what we, the big we, collective we, do to the other of us. So inevitably, you need to come back to the discussion about relationship between human beings. Then the other question I had was, is this a innate? Is this natural? I don't know the answer to that. I, my inclination says maybe maybe it's not uh, 
being unjust is not a natural thing. It's not something that you're born with. And I lean more towards there's some universality to justice that I think is what Plato is trying to, um, to uncover. Then the other thought I had, well, well, maybe justice is just following the laws. But then I said, well, who put those laws in place? They had to have some concept of justice or injustice. And, and that's it. That's as far as my, my headache uh, led me to. But um, that's all I wanted to mention. Thank you for that, and and uh, you know present some interesting ways of thinking about this. You know the idea that justice requires a minimum of two, right? I think if I can paraphrase from what you were saying, you know that if you were just alone on this planet, then would there be need of defining justice? Well, maybe not, as you said. You know, maybe it requires at least two, right? Because it's all about relations between us. Um, and then you raise the question, well, why does Socrates then start to look at uh, the city and to see if they can find justice in the city? And I think we'll see that in the next part that we'll, we'll read, um, which is where they start to build up the city, you know, as Socrates proposes that they can, by examining a city, they kind of conduct this thought experiment by creating this city in their, in their minds, this theoretical city, they can examine how it operates and in seeing how it operates, they can find instances of justice and find instances of injustice. And maybe that's how they're going to find this definition, because it's hard to find a universal definition unless you actually see it in operation. I think that's what they were saying. So it was, a, it was an interesting, um, in interesting fact, way that you put it. Yeah. James, if I yeah. may add, when you think about this, uh, it, it may sound a little bit um, um, ridiculous to think, well, if you're the only one on the planet. But what the point I was trying to make is that uh, justice is what occurs between people and relationship between people. Therefore, when when you think about, okay, when do I witness a just behavior or an unjust behavior is always with respect to someone or a group behaving against another group or another someone. So it comes back to what Jose Jay was saying that Maybe we're talking here a universal value of a moral value or a moral foundation uh, that needs to be defined as opposed to just uh, uh, some rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good. And let's discuss that. I, I think that's a, it's an interesting question. And maybe while we go, we'll, we'll go to Bill next and then to Stephanie. But just as we do that, I'm going to um share the screen again uh sorry let me just find my share screen button and i'm going to share the screen again and just put up this um it's actually just where this section first begins at 357b to 358a and it's this uh, definition of the three different types of good that Glaucon sets out at the beginning. And I put it in the form of a triangle um, just because in Timaeus, Plato or Socrates tells us that, uh, actually Timaeus, I guess, tells us that the universe is composed of triangles. So I put this in the form of a triangle because in this section, Glaucon says, well, there's three types of good. There's good in itself, which is this midline in the triangle that divides it into two, this line that I've labeled AD that goes from the apex of the triangle down to the middle of the base. And then at either side of the base of the triangle, 
uh, we've got either uh, the, an outcome that includes justice in itself, or we've got an outcome that does not have justice in itself, but represents justice or good in this case, not justice, but good. But he uses this by, by reference to the nature of justice as well. So, you know, is, is there justice in and of itself, which is, would be this midline in the triangle, or do we always judge justice by its outcomes, by its presence in outcomes, um, which is uh, either point in the, the base of the triangle? And so it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. So let's go to uh, Bill and then to Stephanie. Well, thanks for putting up this diagram. Um, I've seen it before and uh, I have some comments about it. Um, you know, uh, there's a question of whether one or two is the better. I know the, the, the question posed by, um, by Plato or Glaucon in, in this, uh, in this text was, uh, is, is justice good for its own sake? However, I asked the question, why would anyone do justice if they knowingly knew that it was going to cause harm? So yeah, I, I think the performance of justice, is, it's, it's inherent that something, a net good would come out of it. Maybe not for everyone, or maybe not even for oneself. But there's a net good with the society or people in general. So that's one thing I wanted to say. The other thing is, you know, doing unjust, doing unjust things is um, one thing one has to realize is what does it do to the peace of mind of the person? Are they always looking over their shoulders to see if they're being, if they're caught? Is, 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 uh, is it, is it occupying your mind, you know, the guilt? And, um, and what is the long-term effects of injustice? Well, I think those are things one has to um, think about. I know I do when I, you know, when I'm, I'm making a decision and I know what's, what's in my favor, what's good for me, but maybe not necessarily for other people. So I think... Uh, you know, sometimes I choose one or the other. I must, I have to admit that I'm not, I do, I have done unjust things. I know that, uh, either through ignorance or even through knowledge. But, um, um, you know, I think, uh, I think doing unjust, doing justice has to have um, a net benefit. Interesting use of the, the, the term net benefit, you know, and I guess, um, you know, and here I was trying to illustrate that with the plus and the minus signs, for example, you know, do you bring justice into the consequences and retain it in and of itself? Or do you just bring it into the consequences and you don't experience justice in and of itself? And the example here in terms of the good that Glaucon used was, uh, you know, where the good exists both in and of itself and in the consequences is if you enjoy something and your enjoyment of that thing does, doesn't cause anybody else harm. And that was his example of that, which would be good in, in and of itself and, and in its consequences. And so that would be the, the plus side of this triangle split into two. And then, you know, his example of, of the good, which is not, you're not doing good in and of itself, but you're doing it only for the consequences is, for example, you know, exercise or medical treatment, something that's not 
particularly enjoyable in and of itself, you know, it causes some sort of pain or, um, you know, disagreeableness, but you're doing it only for the consequences. And so, you know, that's the, that's the case. And so, uh, you know, if you were to imagine yourself in this triangle positioned in the middle of it, trying to find what good is in, in and of itself or justice is in and of itself, as you asked, um, you know, what would that do to your own self-image, I guess, or your, your perception of yourself if you were to consistently do injustice? And that's actually, it was an interesting, we, we talked a little bit about that in our last episode, I think, where, you know, this idea that, that was raised in Theotetus, uh, you know, where uh, Socrates said that the greatest evil would to become a stereotype uh, of of yourself incapable of incapable of being able to judge between good and bad and uh, i think there's a lovely line you know that at that point you become a bad man tied to bad company in, in other words tied to yourself because you're incapable of judging so that was an interesting um, connection that i think we made to theotetus with the last uh, episode and so you raise you raise good questions and we'll go to stephanie and see what your thoughts on those are Hi. Yeah, I just had a few thoughts based on some things that others have said, but um, we're talking about, you know, what is just, what is injustice and the, the definition. Um, and I think it, it definitely changes, right, based on what society is willing to accept. Um, I think we're social beings inherently, and we want to go with the flow, right? We want to fit in. Most of us typically um, follow social norms. And so those definitions could shift and change. Um, we talked about people in power, and I think that those in power can shift the definition. Um, perhaps it changes a bit if it's of more benefit to them and those who are in power. Um, Bill talked about looking over your shoulder, right? If you do something wrong, but if the definition has changed, maybe you can get away with those things because it's socially acceptable. Um, I think we see that a lot today, um, just with those those changing differences. Um, and the last point, Moshe had talked about the Taliban going over there, taking their guns, making them talk. You know, like we think that's the right thing to do. Um, personally, yes, I would agree. Um, but I think the Taliban thinks that what they're doing is is right and just, right? So who are we to say that they're wrong? Um, obviously, there's loss of life. Like I, I get all of that. I'm not advocating for what they're doing in any way. Um, but they truly feel that that's right. So all of us have our own foundational definitions of what is right and just. And I think as a society, and this is my opinion, I think we're lacking that foundation to fall back on. Um, oftentimes, we do just kind of go with the flow. Um, uh, to bring it to current events, COVID is a perfect example. There are so many opinions on what people think is right. And um, there's so many topics that fall under COVID, like shutdowns, vaccines, schools being open, all of that. Um, and a lot of us lack that foundational piece, like our guiding principles to fall back on. Um, and then we, we waver and we go with the flow, maybe do what's popular. Um, so I think that that that's a piece that's missing in our society. And part of why I like studying these texts um, to kind of get that foundation of what I truly believe is right or wrong and what my values are. 
um, as a human being in this world. Thank you for that. Uh, I actually found that um, comparison to people's reaction to the COVID pan pandemic and, you know, whether, for example, whether it's right or wrong to force people to get a vaccine, you know, is it is is the individual choice to get a vaccine or not greater than the, you know, the necessity of protecting those who don't want to get ill. Um, so it's a really interesting comparison, actually, in, in this idea of social acceptance. You know, we, we do things because naturally we, we want to be accepted and we want to, you know, have some agency in our communities. And, uh, you know, that's certainly, I think, why one of the reasons why Socrates proposes that they construct this theoretical city to see how people relate to each other and to see where justice comes into the uh, into play. But, you know, you raise the question of how do we distinguish right from wrong? Uh, and that's a very important theme, obviously, you, you know, what constitutes knowledge? I mean, that was Theotetus, that was the Mino, you know, a whole bunch of Plato's dialogues focus on that, you know, how do we know one thing from another? Uh, and certainly, you know, where we started the, Repu the Republic three weeks ago in our first session on it, uh, you know, we looked at the, again, the allegory of the cave, you know, are we staring at images on a wall? Or are we looking at projections thinking that they're reality, but in fact, they're not reality. In fact, there's some deeper reality, as in the case of that allegory, or, um, you know, in distinguishing between what is real and what's not real, you know, do we use the divided line method that we talked about last time as well, which is also discussed in that same uh, section of the Republic, you know, that divided line, that dialectic method where we get together and we sort of compare results. You know, I think it was JK maybe last time that said that it's kind of a method of using inductive logic and comparing the results with deductive logic and then seeing where they meet in the middle to determine what's real from what's not real. So uh, very, some powerful ideas raised there. So thank you for that. And we'll go to Moshe. Uh. Uh, I'm going to limit myself to something that the universality of these topics is, uh, is amazing. Uh, but I, I want to remind everyone that Socrates was a, a materialist. Uh, he came from, uh, he, he came from the Greek materialist of the tradition from, you know, Thales to, uh, Anaxagoras and the rise of reason in nature, uh, the idea that reason itself emerged from nature. And he observed reason uh, uh, arising from nature in, uh, the, in the actions of man, because man, who is not separated from nature, but was a part of nature, could be reasonable in this, and reason acting in nature could be seen in politics. It could be seen in the creation of the city, how the city comes together, and all these different branches that are required in order to be able to make it successful. And I take that as the foundation for which uh, Plato at this point through Socrates wants to imagine reason creating a city. And so he's gonna build this rational model of a city, um, you know, based upon, you know, he starts out, you know, asking the question, well, do you have justice if you just have one person? No, you, you need a bunch of people. You need at least two people for that, because justice arises in the in the in, in cases of conflict. And in order to be able to run a city, you're going to need to have these different classes of 
people, you're going to need to have the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker and the guardian and, and everything like that. Um, so I, I just want to, just for the sake of general Platonic scholarship, bring this back to the idea that that Plato is wrestling, well, Socrates is, has the belief that, that reason comes from nature itself and be observed in nature itself and the actions of man in politics and that we can find that in ourselves uh, as, as, as part of nature, reason, you know, comes through, uh, you know, comes through uh, us as well. And that's the foundation upon which Plato wants to be able to build his uh, ideal city. Uh, and the questions of the, uh, how ideal the city is, 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 is an open question, but I think that's the foundation of it. I, I, um, yeah, I think you, you raised a good point, you know, this idea that reason is is a property of nature uh and if it's a property of nature i guess that it would be universal and um you know maybe here we might think of the three parts of the soul that we'll get to i think in two subsequent episodes not not uh not the next episode but the one following that um where in the republic uh socrates talks about the, the three parts of the soul reason kind of sits in the middle um, and on one side, we've got the appetites and on the other side, we've got the thumos or the spirit. And if we think back to Phaedrus, which we discussed in season one, you know, it was like this battle between the two horses pulling the chariot. You'd have a good horse pulling a chariot and the bad horse. And maybe the bad horse is the one that just responds to the appetites and the good horse is the one that's driven by reason. And, uh, so I think the point that you raised Moshe is one that we will definitely want to, Keep in mind when we start looking at how Socrates um, defines the soul or, or it's, it segregates the soul into three different parts uh, in our in two subsequent episodes. So, so thank you for that. Um, we'll go to Bill. What uh, what came to mind was you know when we're examining you know two options either one 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 is the, what we would consider a just option and one is unjust option. Um, I think one needs to go back to uh, to the, to the basics and try to find try to look for the truth and the, the truth without bias without your particular bias and the truth with reason and actually with and and try to find the love in in it as well so um you know, and it's 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 hard. To, it's not always easy to do that because the bias can be very very strong, and uh, over the years developing, and and it's for some in some cases it may be impossible to come to the truth, and once you you can't come to the truth, then 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 uh, the justice is not um, is not clear whether what you're doing is just or not. So um, yeah. I think in some ways justice is innate. If one can get access to to the to what's what's below the surface, what 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 you see is what is the truth. But it's not always easy. <laughs> sure, and and I like the way you use the word bias in terms of trying to remove that. Maybe maybe when we think about uh, justice or good in the case of this triangle on the screen, where you know, Glaucon's talking at 357B to 358A, 
maybe maybe it's if we remove the outcomes from our judgment of the effects, um, that's maybe where we remove the bias. Uh, so maybe that's maybe that's one idea that he's getting at there. Um, you also mentioned the word love, uh, which strikes me. I think we'll maybe want to hold on to that idea of love uh, because maybe. Uh, you know, as we look through the Republic, do we see a discussion of love and its effects? Um, because maybe if we act with a view to love, um, then this whole kind of motivation that Glaucon is proposing, that we're motivated by injustice, that if we were given free reign, if we were given the ring of Gyges, we would naturally be unjust. But as you said, Bill, you know, what if, how does love play into this? Like, if does that override any sort of natural inclination to injustice. Um, and it's an important point, I think, that we want to keep in mind, especially as we look at, you know, the, the way the guardians are described, you know, we'll, we'll start talking about the guardians maybe in about a half an hour as we get towards the end of this episode. Um, but I don't see a lot of love in the whole creation of this guardian class. And maybe that's something that's missing from this city. Um, so it's something that we definitely want to keep in mind, I think. Maybe at this point, um, Let's go to the second reading. If um, I'll, I'll put it on the uh, the screen here, and this is the part where uh, it's mostly Socrates and um, and Adamantus, but Glaucon comes in at the end, and this is the part where they're creating, they're starting to construct the city. The city is the word city is used, but it's really meant to be any kind of settlement, any any group of people, any community. Uh, which Socrates starts by saying that, you know, the, the reason we get into communities and groupings is because it, none of us is self-sufficient. None of us can exist on our own forever. We always need somebody else. Like, you know, you know, for example, in my work, I'm an accountant, uh, so I can account, but I don't know how to build a house, but I need, I need walls to live in or else I'll freeze. And so, uh, you know, so, I have a particular skill, but I need the skills of others to help me to survive. And so I thought we might just go through this uh, section here from 369D to 370D, the, the constitution of the theoretical city, um, and just kind of observe this discussion. So here they're trying, here is what Socrates has proposed they do. They, they look for justice in the in this thought experiment where they're they're trying to create this theoretical city you know whether it's an ideal city or not is is very much in question i think i don't think he i don't think socrates uh calls the city that they eventually create as ideal and i want to point that out today uh but i think the, the real purpose of their doing this is to to see if they can observe in their thought experiment uh the the reasons for a city coming to being or the reason for a community for coming to being and uh, what is healthy in such a community and what is not necessarily healthy. Um, so I don't know if I would have a volunteer there. There's two roles in here. There's Socrates and there's Adamantus. Uh, I mean, I could I'll be, be Adamantus. Okay. Moshe is Adamantus. And maybe you could be Glaucon at the end too. There's a few lines for Glaucon, if you wouldn't mind. Um, and is, does anybody want to be Socrates in this, or shall I be Socrates? Oh, okay, I'll, I'll be Socrates then, if that's okay. So this starts at 369D, and Socrates says, Come then, let's create a city in theory from its beginnings. And it's our needs, it seems, that will create it. 
It is indeed. Surely our first and greatest need is to provide food to sustain life. Certainly. Our second is for shelter, and our third for clothes and such. That's right. How then will a city be able to provide all this? Won't one person have to be a farmer, another a builder, and another a weaver? And shouldn't we add a cobbler and someone else to provide medical care? All right. So the essential minimum for a city is four or five men. Apparently. And what about this? Must each of them contribute his own work for the common use of all? For example, will a farmer provide food for everyone, spending quadruple the time and labor to provide food to be shared by them all? Or will he not bother about that, producing one quarter of the food in one quarter of the time, and spending the other three quarters, one in building a house, one in the production of clothes, and one in making of shoes, not troubling to associate with the others, but minding his own business on his own? Perhaps, Socrates, the way you suggest first would be easier than the other. That certainly wouldn't be surprising, for even as you were speaking, it occurred to me that in the first place, we aren't all born alike, but each of us differs somewhat in nature from the others. One being suited to one task, another to another, or don't you think so? I do. Second, does one person do a better job if he practices many crafts, or since he's one person himself, if he practices one? If he practices one. Well, it's clear at any rate, I think, that if one misses the right moment in anything, the work is spoiled. It is. That's because the thing to be done won't wait on the leisure of the doer, but the doer must of necessity pay close attention to his work rather than treating it as a secondary occupation. Yes, he must. The result then is that the more plentiful and better quality goods are more easily produced if each person does one thing for which he is naturally suited, does it at the right time, and is released from having to do any of the others. Absolutely. Then, Adamantus, we're going to need more than four citizens to provide the things we've mentioned, for a farmer won't make his own plow, not if it's to be a good one, nor his hoe, nor any of his other farming tools. Neither will a builder, and he too needs lots of things. And the same is true of a weaver and a cobbler, isn't it? It is. All right, I'll just break the discussion just there briefly, just to say that it proceeds, you know, through 372A. Uh, and here they provide descriptions of the growth of the city and the services and occupations that it would require. It would need money. It would need metal workers, herdsmen, craftsmen, merchants, importers and exporters, uh, wage earners. You know, so they, they continue to build this theoretical city, you know, adding, adding various players and roles in the construction of the city. So then at 372A, Glaucon interrupts, uh, and we get this idea of a feverish city. Um, so I'll just start again uh, at 372A with Socrates. Socrates says, then where are justice and injustice to be found in the city? I have no idea, Socrates, unless it is somewhere in some need that these people have of one another. You may be right, but we must look into it and not grow weary. First then, let's see what sort of life our citizens will lead when they've, when they've been provided for in the way we have been describing. They'll produce bread, wine, clothes, and shoes, won't they? They'll build houses, work naked and barefoot in the summer, and wear adequate clothing and shoes in the winter. For food, they'll knead and cook the flour and meal they've made from wheat and barley. 
They'll put their honest cakes and loaves uh, on reed or clean leaves and reclining on beds strewn with yew and myrtle. They'll feast with their children, drink their wine, and crowned with wreaths, hymn the gods. They'll enjoy sex with one another, but bear no more children than their resources allow, lest they fall into either poverty or war. It seems that you make your people feast without any delicacy. True enough. I was forgetting that they'll obviously need salt, olives, cheese, boiled roots, and vegetables of the sort they cook in the country. We'll give them desserts too, of course, consisting of figs, chickpeas, and beans. And they'll roast myrtle and acorns before the fire, drinking moderately. And so they'll live in peace and good health. And when they die at a ripe old age, they'll bequeath a similar life to their children. If you were founding a city for pigs, Socrates, wouldn't you fatten them on the same diet? Then how should I feed these people, Glaucon? In the conventional way, if they are, hold on, I've got to sign this. In the conventional way, if they aren't to suffer hardship, they should recline on proper couches, dine at a table, and have the delicacies and desserts that people have nowadays. All right, I understand. It isn't merely the origin of a city that we're considering, it seems, but the origin of a luxurious city. And that may not be a bad idea, for by examining it, we might very well see how justice and injustice grow up in cities. Yet the true city, in my opinion, is the one we've described, the healthy one, as it were. But let's study a city with a fever, if that's what you want. There's nothing to stop us. The things I mentioned earlier and the way of life I described won't satisfy some people, it seems. But couches, tables, and other furniture will have to be added. And of course, all sorts of delicacies, perfumed oils, incense, prost prostitutes, and pastries. We mustn't provide them only with the necessities we mentioned at first, such as houses, clothes, and shoes. But painting and embroidery must be begun. And gold, ivory, and the like acquired, is that not so? Yes. Then we must enlarge our city, for the healthy one is no longer adequate. We didn't need any of these in our earlier city, but we'll need them in this one. Well, thank you, Moshe, for reading both Adamantus and, and Glaucon in that selection. And um, I just wonder what people think about this, in particular, this idea between how we distinguish between what Socrates calls a healthy city and the, the feverish city that they wind up then constructing from that point on. Anybody's thoughts on that? Moshe, your thoughts? Uh, I think it's a false distinction. Uh, I think that a feverish city uh, is a healthy city uh, because he didn't build anything into the feverish city like uh, crime or pestilence or, um, or or any of the things that we would regard as, as negative. And I, I also want to point out that that even from the very beginning, it was more a commentary on Plato's time than anything else. Uh, they did, uh, you know, in order to have a city, you not only need to have five men, but you're going to have to have five women as well, because otherwise there's not going to be many babies that it's going to be passed on uh, that you can bequeath your, your wealth and, and prosperity to. So but my, my big point is I, I don't see, I, I think it's a, a, a false dichotomy between a, a healthy city and a fever city, at least the way the fever city was described. Well, thank you for that perspective. And I certainly would invite others to weigh in on that 
idea, you know, do you see this distinction uh, as a real one or a false one? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think maybe I would just call attention to one thing there. Um, and it's the words that, um, I'm just uh, looking for the words here. Uh, yeah, it's this idea that, uh, that they're giving the people in the city the luxuries, um, that the luxuries aren't something that the people themselves develop in the city. It's something that's being given to them. Um, and I just wonder whether that distinction between, you know, the, the development of luxuries by the people of the city on their own or the giving of the luxuries to them so that they don't have to develop them on their own is maybe that part of the distinction that's being made. So, but uh, thank you for raising that question. It's a very important one that we, that do we find this distinction that Socrates is making between a healthy and a feverish city to be, um, to be one that we, we can relate to. So uh, we'll go to Jose J for your thoughts. <clears throat> well, one, one, uh, one big difference, I think, I think it's a huge difference is that uh, the transition from the health, from the healthy city to the luxury city is that uh, they need to expand. And they need to acquire new land, and uh, so they will need war, and they will need, and and they don't mention here, but they, they will need the slavery. So and they start like at the huge injustices, they will be there. So this is why in the like in the in the luxury city they will need this guardians class, because in the healthy city they didn't need a guardian class. Well, thank you for that. And, and yes, they certainly do go on to talk about how to maintain these luxuries, because other people will want these luxuries as well. So for the city to defend itself and to maintain its luxuries and to keep people from taking away their luxuries that they would need to then engage in war, uh, and that they would need to expand their territory to protect themselves further. So I think that's maybe one of the reasons why Socrates is saying, or at least in his view, that this is perhaps the, the origin of a feverish city is the, the idea that luxuries are natural to their existence and that they must have the luxuries without necessarily developing them on their own. So it's, it's a thought to keep in mind, but I'm wondering what others think. Uh, Bill, what are your thoughts? Well, to my mind, um, the, um, the city, what does he call it now? The um, name for the city? Anyway, the luxurious city, I guess. Luxurious city, yeah. Yes. So it, it, to me, it's a materialistic society. And um, as you said, James, I agree with you in, some, in, in what you said. It, it does, it can generate uh, envy, can generate crime, greed. And um, those kind of things where some people have more than others, by not by their own efforts, but by just being granted them for some reason, through inheritance or whatever. So it does, it does create uh, this kind of, kind of tension in the society that is not, not really healthy. Interesting use of the word uh, materialist there, Bill. And I think maybe this paragraph where he's talking about, you know, the adding of perfumed oils, incense, prostitutes, and pastries, um, you know, as an example of materialism uh, that's 
being allowed to creep into the development of the city. I really like the use of that word. I think that's uh, that's maybe something that we can relate to today. This, this idea of materialism, although we can't relate to necessarily oils and incense, uh, but uh, you know that would have been more valuable to them back then, twenty four hundred years ago, maybe. But uh, um, but yeah, no, thank you, thank you for that, um, Moshe. Your thoughts? Uh, I don't think it. Well, first of all, I want to go back to this paragraph that you uh, referred to when Socrates says. Uh, they will give them desserts too. Uh, it's not clear to me that that is not merely uh, a, uh, a rhetorical remark. Uh, it does not imply that, or it, it does not, in order for that remark to be true, it does not require a giver. Uh, it, it just means that we're going to be uh, more realistic in our design of the city. And so we're going to give them these other things. In other words, it's going to, if you take a look at the um, uh, the analogy of the cave, a lot of the things that we take out of the analogy of the cave uh, are actually written as interrogatives. Okay, so I mean the interrogative is, is used by Plato many times in order to be able to make the rhetorical point. You know, this is a statement, and I think that this is rhetorical too. When he's saying that we will we'll give them desserts, it's just that it's just that. Uh, without regard to whether they're producing them the, uh, uh, themselves, uh, it, it, people like to have these little luxuries. And, and somebody, when he's out there farming his field, is going to be able to find a, uh, you know, a beehive and he's going to ha harvest some honey. And you know, it can come about in, in a completely natural way. The other thing is that um, is that uh, I don't think that war is either is, is axiomatic and either in this particular account. Uh, I mean by that, um, uh, we take a look uh, at um, unbridled capitalism, uh, which was not the economic system at that particular time. And we find that the, that the raw uh, acquisition of wealth and the attitude that, uh, that too much is never enough uh, leads to wanting to grab other people's possessions and lands and and things like that. And uh, if, you take the, if you take a look at the, the richest people in the world, and even some of the people who are just rich, rich, um, um, you ask yourself the question, or at least I ask myself the question, well, how much money do you have to have in order to be as comfortable as you are right now? I mean, do you need three boats or is two boats enough? I mean, uh, how many how many luxury houses in in Wyoming do I have to own uh, in, in order to say that I'm happy? Couldn't I have just one nice house in Wyoming? Um, so uh, I I think that the Epicureans give us the uh, the a suggestion to that that we can be happy with what we have, and it, it doesn't fall from that that we have to you know have to fall into this um, uh, into this uh, idea of war. Uh, also, in, in terms of, and maybe you'll get to it later, maybe I'm, 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 I'm peeking behind the curtain now, but the development of the guardian class, um, it doesn't follow from that that you need to have the guardian class who go out and make war against other people. The guardian class could also be employed as a police, you know, coming out of the same society just to make sure that everybody's, you know, when, you know, when, um, 
you know, when Alcibiades comes home drunk, you know, that he doesn't go out and beat people up or start a war in Sicily or something like that. And, and we will look at the, the guardian class. And so thank you for raising that because it's, uh, it's something that we'll look at next in the last reading that I've lined up for today. Um, and certainly something that will, you know, permeate a lot of the rest of the discussion on the Republic as we go forward with, uh, with more sections of it. Um, you know, and I guess the, yeah, I mean, I, you raise the point that, you know, not, not everybody is necessarily going to be inclined this way for just kind of unlimited uh, search for unlimited wealth that's going to require war and all of that. And, and I think that's maybe, uh, you know, is that maybe part of the kind of psychological examination that they're doing with this thought experiment? You know, I, um, you know, are they trying to maybe build a theoretical city that involves that, uh, but not saying necessarily that that's the way it would really play out in real life, you know, for reasons that, uh, uh, you know, maybe Bill mentioned earlier, the idea of love. So maybe in real life, love kind of overrides some of this tendency, if you believe in this natural tendency for people to be unjust or to try to gain the maximum benefit that they can for themselves. Uh, you know, maybe in this thought experiment, that's how they're building the city, you know, as if there is that natural tendency. But in real life, you know, I think maybe, you know, there are other reasons why or there are other things that could override that natural tendency. So it's something that we can certainly explore. And I think, as you point out, you know, there are some people clearly who are able to establish limits on their materialism. Um, and so let's keep that in mind as we go forward. And thank you for raising that. Uh, we have Jose J. Your thoughts? Yes. <clears throat> yes, yes, by reading this, uh, like really the, the, the book, well, book one and book two here now, uh, there are several points that, uh, that the Plato touches that is the base for some modern theories that is still discussion. For example, like uh, theories of uh, morality. In morality, we have basically, like a way, what they call the ontology. So, so the rules of uh, some some uh, some laws, some by 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 duties, and they have consequentialism, and they have virtue ethics. So when he divided the goods and he said that justice is what uh, what it produces the best uh, consequences, and that is good for itself, he's touching into virtue ethics and he's touching into consequentialism. And now the way that he started building the city. He's touching into like a theories of uh, of um, social contract and, uh, and and something something very interesting that uh, one of these uh, modern philosophers I, I think it was Rousseau that uh, he said that uh, that uh, the man people they were nice until until they discover uh, private property and competition. And now, as we see, when we introduce these things in the city, we, we introduce the necessity of war. So that's, that's where injustice starts. And in this case, it's living. It, it was my comment. So now, like, um, maybe, maybe we can talk about that uh, in another time, but uh, I, think, I, think, I, uh, I think even that, I know that the Republic is long and it's 10 books, but I think we should probably dedicate a whole season just to, to read the Republic. I, I think it's, to me at least, I think it's the most important of the, 
all the all the dialogue of Plato. I, 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 I honestly would like to cover the whole thing. Okay, James, thank you. I appreciate that, that Jose, and uh, I'll certainly do my best to ensure that we get to really as much of the Republic as we possibly can. Um, and I think, I think you're right, you know, certainly it, it does touch on this, the very nature of our existence together as, as societies. And, you know, you raised the point of the social contract, and I just wanted to go back to 359A, which we didn't read together. Uh, but that's where, you know, Glaucon says that, um, maybe I'll just read that brief bit, you know, at 359A, where Glaucon says, they say that to do injustice is naturally good and to suffer injustice bad, but that the badness of suffering it so far exceeds the goodness of doing it, that those who have done and suffered injustice and tasted both, but who lack the power to do it and avoid suffering it, decide that it is profitable to come to an agreement with each other, neither to do injustice nor to suffer it. As a result, they begin to make laws and covenants, and what the law commands they call lawful and just. And so that's that idea, I think, of social contract, you know, so the, the, the people in this, you know, theoretical city that Socrates and Glaucon and Adamantus are creating, um, you know, will have this, this kind of social contract where they, they agree that, you know, to constrain um, maybe natural tendencies, whether we believe or not in those natural tendencies, uh, that, uh, that to at least constrain it, that here are the laws that are necessary because we need to keep a check on each other. Um, so, so I just wanted to read that section just on the social contract kind of idea there that you, uh, that you mentioned uh, and that I appreciate. Moshe, your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I just want to point out that the next sentence in that is, this they affirm to be the origin and nature of justice. And um, it, it, this is this is proto Hobbesianism. I mean, this is this is this is really Hobbes writ large that we will make laws uh, amongst ourselves, and we will give up some of our, our our freedom, and we will cause we will we will make these the laws that we um, uh, that that we follow. And so we are giving up our liberties in order. Uh, uh, we're going to ultimately give them up to the Leviathan in order to be able to make our cities sound. And I just wanted to point out what I take to be the importance of that paragraph as well, Jim. And, and it, it's good. Thank you for reading that uh, additional sentence that I didn't read there because that's an important one, you know, in this, uh, um, you know, I, I think it goes back again to this this concept of, you know, do we have this kind of bad part of us that will naturally seek injustice? You know, that if I were given the ring of Gyges, I would necessarily go out and do things that would be unjust or unjust. They might be maybe minimally unjust, you know, maybe just to benefit me just a little bit and not hurt anybody too much. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's an interesting thought experiment that if we did have that unrestricted power, what would we do? And if you believe that we would do some bad things, then we need some restrictions. And the laws kind of are those restrictions. And then it, does it become a case, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that Glaucon says, you know, that justice is kind of a compromise between the worst and the best. Justice is neither the worst nor the best, but it's kind of this uh, 
you know, uh, mean of the extremes is the word, is a term that was used. And so, you know, that's, I think any way you, you think about our, our nature, whether it's naturally good or naturally bad, um, you know, I think hopefully we can relate to this whole discussion of building up the city and, and looking for it, even if we don't think that people are necessarily going to behave as they say in their thought experiment, then maybe we can just look at the thought experiment and see, well, you know, if this were the case, then how would justice respond or how would justice emerge if this were the case? So it's a, it's an interesting thought. So do we need this natural, do we need the laws as a constraint on our, uh, on our, on the damage that we would otherwise do to ourselves? And if you think about, you know, how laws have been developed over time, certainly, you know, when we saw the apology, for example, when we read the apology, you know, we saw very, you know, what I think we would all think is a bad case of the applications of the laws, you know, that, that wound up in, in the execution of Socrates. So the laws aren't necessarily always good either. It depends maybe really on who's making the laws. And I wanted to just, you know, kind of see again, you know, whether we think that Socrates is right in saying that this luxurious city or materialist city uh, is a feverish one or not, maybe it's not a feverish one, but if he thinks it's a feverish one, then I just wanted to keep that in mind in terms of Socrates' attitude throughout the rest of the Republic, you know, because it's said that, you know, as as they talk about the development of the guardian class, that Socrates is um, advocating for some of these things that they talk about. But I just wanted to keep that this particular point in mind that Socrates has said, whether he's right or wrong, he said that he thinks that the healthy city is the first one that they described without the luxuries, without the, uh, without the, um, the materialism, if, if we accept Bill's definition of that. And then by adding the luxuries or adding the materialism, we don't have a healthy city. We have one uh, that is a city with a fever here. And Socrates says, clearly, yet the true city, in my opinion, is the one that we've described, the healthy one, as it were. So whether or not you agree with Socrates' opinion, that is the opinion that he's expressed. And I think that this is important to understand his attitude through the rest of the Republic and in terms of understanding is Socrates actually endorsing some of the things that they subsequently discussed, such as the creation of the guardian class, which I want to move to in, in just a few minutes here. Jose. I, I want just to ask a question and, and yes, uh, for what you said, wh why is the name healthy city? You know, for the first city, mm -hmm. is that the other one is unhealthy or like a, because he will introduce injustice, I think, or I I am wondering why this why he chose this name. It's it's a good question. Thank you for raising that because it's it's one that uh, this idea of health, this idea of health and unhealth, or fever and no fever, uh, is one that seems to come up a lot in in Plato's writing. You know, the the this comparison of health to uh, a, a healthy state to a state that's not healthy is is one that has appeared multiple times in in the dialogues that we've already looked at in season one, for example. Um, and 
you know, let's let's maybe probe that a little bit, and, and maybe it goes back uh, in some way to a point that Moshe raised. Um, I think a few comments ago, uh, and I'm just thinking about this paragraph here uh, where Socrates says, we'll give them the desserts too, consisting of figs, chickpeas, and beans, and the roast myrtle and, ac- and acorns. And um, to me, as I read that, these desserts are all things that come from nature. They're not material things. They are things that appear naturally and, and are, do not, they're not imposed. Like they're just part of nature. And so all, all Socrates is saying there is that, you know, these people will be able to enjoy nature and enjoy their desserts from nature, but it's not something that's being added uh, externally. It's not some sort of material benefit that, that's external that's imposed on them. Uh, and so maybe that's, as, as you were asking the question, it made me think that maybe there is a connection with health. You know, healthy is what's natural and feverish is what's not natural. So I'll just put that thought out there and, and uh, Bill, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think that the term feverish is interesting. <clears throat> to me, it applies agitation. Uh, and uh, with, with agitation, people are not, not really at rest. So they don't have really time to make uh, um, a really well-considered judgment. There's not enough time to really just think about what's what's going on and what really is there, not what what appears to be there. As you say that, Bill, it actually just reminds me again of what we talked about in our last episode uh, in the allegory of the cave, and you know this idea of uh, looking at these reflections and then taking time to reflect. I, I like the way that you said that. You know, it's agitation and not at rest, and you don't have time to to examine what it is that you are doing and what you're what you're demanding of your community. Just wondering if there's any other thoughts on on this contrast of feverish to healthy. The, the good question that Jose raised: Why 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 use the term healthy? We can keep that thought in mind as we as we move forward, and maybe this is a good point to move forward then to this uh, creation of the guardian class. And here, sort of this, I think maybe starts around. You know, 374. Uh, and what I've done here on the, the notes in the in the shared drive is I've just taken some <clears throat> selections from 374E to 376C. And just kind of <clears throat> these these talk about kind of the creation of the guardian class and the nature of the guardian class. Um, and again, you know, the reason they've done this is because they think or Socrates thinks that this is a fever city and it's going to need guarding. And as Jose mentioned earlier, you know, this idea that if the city is going to be expanding its territory and defending its territory, that it needs to create this, this guardian class. And this, the whole, the whole reason that a separate class of guardians is required uh, or so the, the thought experiment goes is this idea that was raised in our, in the, the section that we just finished reading this idea that um, no person can do more than one thing at a time. And so that's, that's this section here that I've got in the screen where Socrates says, 
Second, does one person do a better job if he practices many crafts? Or since he's one person, uh, if he practices just one? Since he's one person himself, if he practices just one. And then Adamantus says, if he practices one. Uh, and I'm wondering if everybody agrees with that. You know, it, it's just Socrates doesn't challenge it. Uh, this is Adamantus's conclusion, if a person practices one. So this is this is this idea that we're each born with uh, different natural aptitudes, and Adamantus is saying that we should stick to the one thing that we are naturally best at. And I wonder if this is something that we would accept. Socrates does not signal his acceptance here. Socrates follows up by saying, "It's clear at any rate, I think, that if one misses the right moment in anything, the work is spoiled." So Socrates is not addressing this conclusion of Adamantus. He's just saying, at any rate, something else is clear. Uh, so I'm just wondering, you know, do we accept this idea that we are each fitted to one thing and one thing only? Because if we are, and if our community needs protection, and I'm not naturally a soldier, then I need to employ a soldier to defend me because I'm only fit to be one thing. I'm only fit to be an accountant. I'm not fit for anything else in, in my role in society. And so because I'm only fit to be one thing, I need the, that protective class. So wondering what we think about that. So we'll start with Jose and then go to Moshe. <clears throat> well, the, and, uh, at one point when he equates uh, the city with the, with the human, with the human soul, um, he, he has a, the class the philosopher's class, I think is a, Maybe the, 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 the rational part, the guardian class is the spirited part of ours, and the and the produces the producers class is our appetites. And at that point, there is a point in the Republic that he defined justice as every 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 part doing their job, harmony, no no conflicts. So maybe this is well, he's start building this. Uh, this uh, this principle here, saying that everybody has to do their own job, and uh, and that's it. And thank you for pointing out that. Yes, we will get, and I think that's actually in our reading for the next session. This idea that justice is harmony, and so even if you don't think that we're fitted each to only one thing, one thing only in life. Um, then however we fit into the equation that there has to be this kind of harmony. And that is the word that is actually used in that, I think, definition that they arrive at at a certain point. Moshe, your, your thoughts on this, either on this idea of we're fitted to one thing and one thing only, or you know, where do we want to go with that idea? Uh, well, I, I, I want to point out that, that um, uh, Socrates, who was a philosopher, was also a soldier in the Peloponnesian Wars. And so he was able to be a philosopher and a warrior, uh, not at the same time, although who knows what he was doing um, uh, out there in the field. But I think that what we're saying here is that a person, I mean, realistically, uh, a person can do more than one thing, but not at the same time. Uh, you know, I can, be, I can be a philosopher, I can be a warrior. Okay, and uh, also we have another example of philosophy of, of Socrates being well. I mean, it comes up in the in the Lockies 
where uh, Nicias is talking about uh, you should have seen uh, uh, Socrates in the, in the retreat from uh, Delium. Uh, well, obviously, he's in the war. I mean, he's a philosopher, and he's able to do two things, although, as I said, not at the same time. You make a good point, and that's a really good example, actually, the fact that Socrates was actually a soldier and a philosopher. Um, maybe I could add to that that Plato himself, you know, I understand that he was, before he started writing all of these dialogues, a dramatist. And then he became a philosopher in writing these dialogues. And at the same time, he was a geometer. You know, he had his academy. Um, so, you know, the writer of this, I guess, didn't practice just one thing. Uh, but maybe it is, as you say, motion. Maybe it's the idea that we can, we can do several things, but we can only do one thing well at, at one time. And maybe it's this idea that... Uh, uh, that was expressed that uh, the, um, I'm just looking for it here, the idea that uh, uh, the right moment won't, won't wait. Um, yeah, that this, that's because the thing to be done won't wait on the leisure of the doer. So if we're trying to create uh, more plentiful and better quality goods are more easily produced if one person only does one thing at a time. Did you want to add to that, Moshe? Yeah, it's just an observation that occurred to me uh, right at this particular moment, and that is that uh, I, I I get the feeling that Plato is having an argument with Socrates at this particular in this particular dialogue. And the reason why I say that is because of his choice of characters of who. Socrates' interlocutor. Because Glaucon, if I remember correctly, is a relative of Plato. He might even be his brother. Mm -hmm. And so I think one could read this as Glaucon is really speaking for Plato and arguing with Socrates about what the best city is. And giving us, and, and it's that interesting if we, if we look at this in terms of the proto Hobbesian. A paragraph that you read and that I finished with the last sentence about giving up our freedoms and, and installing the law. I, I don't know if anybody, you know, wants to, you know, write a thesis on that, but, you know, I think there's, there's an argument that can be made that Plato's actually arguing with Socrates about what, you know, what, what, what justice is here through the mouth of Glaucon. It's an interesting observation. And uh, I think I see that too, in my own understanding of that whole setup with Glaucon, you know, that, and, and you're right, I think Glaucon was actually, uh, you know, really Plato's brother. And then I think Glaucon, I think he actually became part of the 30, the gang right. of 30 tyrants that, right. that actually, right. yeah, exactly. And right. so, right. yeah, and so there is this, this tension, there's this difference of opinion. And uh, certainly Glaucon is used at the beginning of this, uh, of today's reading selections to kind of set out with a lot more character and finesse, the rather brutal argument that Thrasymachus made in book one. And I think certainly certainly Glaucon raises some very powerful and I think well-argued points. And I think I think it's their task uh, to to refute Glaucon. But I think I think Plato has certainly given Glaucon a very good uh, position at the beginning of this. You know, Glaucon makes a very 
I, I found it very persuasive, very well thought out argument. Uh, and I think it goes to really the nature of how we think, you know, human psychology works. Do we accept this idea that uh, we are naturally inclined to be unjust if we could get away with it? If we had no constraints, if we had that ring of gaijis, would we naturally be un unjust? Yeah, I just want to point out one other historical thing, if I remember correctly. Uh, Thrasymachus was abandoned, uh, and he was taken in by Glaucon and, and lived in his house. So not only is he, um, uh, not only is Glaucon the brother of Plato, who, is, who I take to be espousing these positions, but, but Thrasymachus himself has been educated by Glaucon, in other words, educated by, by Plato to, to give these this particularly harsh position. It's interesting, and it's interesting to think of the whole dramatic construction of this uh, of, of the Republic using these real characters with, a, yes. with understanding what that real background is. That's just very interesting. Thank you, uh, Jose. Your your ideas. Uh, <clears throat> uh, well, uh, uh, this is, this is what I read in some secondary literature that the reason why. Uh, from from book two and onwards, the interlocutors of Socrates are Glaucon and what is the well whatever the old brother Adamantus, yeah. Adamantus, yes. Is that uh, this the Republic is considered one of the mature uh, dialogues of of uh, Plato, mm -hmm. and if you remember all the early in all the earlier uh, dialogues, always the in, most often, the interlocutor was a sophist, and you can see that in the in the book one, the Damascus, he was a sophist as well. So the the argue, the the purpose of the sophist, you remember, is to win the argument, and the purpose of Socrates is was to to just uh, well destroy them, <laughs> you know, destroy the argument and and leave them in a state of aporia. So. So that was the most most of the early dialogues. But this dialogue, uh, he put in purpose these interlocutors that it was Glaucon and Damascus. That they are they were even students in the in the academy in the academy, and uh, because the 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 objectives of the dialogue after this Republic Book Two is to find to find the truth. So the now he's not uh, Socrates is not using the elencos. The elencos, the 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 objective was to to just de destroy the other argument and find all the inconsistencies. Now they are going to find the truth. So this is why Glaucon and Adamantus they are like uh, interlocutors because they are they are philosophers. They are not a uh, uh, sophist. That's a that's an interesting perspective, and you know, thank you for reminding us of the role of sophists. And we've seen that, you know, certainly in some of the uh, dialogues that we discussed in season one. Even when we ended season one with Theotetus, and there was the role of Protagoras in that. Protagoras was, I think, a sophist, and so uh, yeah, you pointed a, a very interesting connection here. Is that we're not we're not just arguing sophistry here. Uh, maybe that goes to the whole starting point that uh, Glaucon started this with. He's not Glaucon didn't want Socrates to describe what justice is in theory. He wanted to uh, he wanted Socrates to describe what justice is in practice. 
And uh, so that's moving kind of from this idea of theoretical philosophy to practical philosophy, I think. And, and so they specifically set this up so that they wouldn't get just a theoretical response, um, but they're actually looking for the practice of it uh, by looking at this large community and seeing if the large relates to the small, which is to the individual. So if we can find justice in the city, we'll find it in the individual. That, that's the whole approach that they've taken. But I, I really like the way you pointed out. I hadn't thought about that, actually, this idea that uh, this is not just arguing sophistry. This is actually arguing, you know, kind of actual practice. And I think that's why they continue to develop this city in their thought experiment with uh, things like the Guardian class. And so maybe I'll just I'll point out some of these selections that I've, uh, you know, just in the 15 minutes or so that we have remaining, some of these selections from 374E to 376C, where they talk about the creation of the Guardian class. And so again, just, you know, this idea of the need for the Guardian class is because they have, in their thought experiment in this city, they have said that each one of us is only suited to one thing and one thing only, which we can debate. You know, maybe that's not true. But in this so-called feverish city, that's the way things are going to be. And so if that's the case, then they're going to need this, this Guardian class. And so at 374E, Socrates says, then our job, it seems, is to select, if we can, the kind of nature suited to guard to guard the city. And so there's, I just wanted to point out the conditional in that, if we can. So it's not to say that, that uh, he thinks that they can for sure, it's if we can. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to highlight in this is this idea that the guardians have to be dedicated to the specific people of the city and to no others. So I think they use the, the uh, you know, analogy of a dog, you know, so the, you know, the, the dog, you can have a fierce attack dog. You can even mistreat your fierce attack dog, but as long as you feed it, as long as you take care of it, you can still mistreat it, kick it around, call it, terrible names, your attack dog will still do its job and defend you because it's defending it's defending its owner. So in a sense, they're trying to create these this guardian class that is effectively owned by the people of the city. And the guardians will uh, will identify with the citizens of the city and they will, whatever the citizens do to them, the guardians will still do their role in fulfilling their guardianship and they will attack the enemy. So we've got you know, us versus them being set up here. And I really thought that this was kind of, you know, this tribalism was coming out in the creation of the guardian class. And it's something that kind of really resonated with where I think a lot of the, you know, issues that the world is facing now come about in this idea of tribalism. So at 375C to D, uh, Socrates says, yet surely they must be gentle to their own people and harsh to the enemy. If they aren't, they won't wait around for others to destroy the city, but will do it themselves first. So in other words, you're creating this, this you know, elite force that attacking, you know, and, and all they're trained to do is to attack. And so you want to make sure that they don't attack the people that created them. They only attack who the people, who the creators say are their enemies. So they must be gentle to their own people and harsh to the enemy. So what are we to do then? Where are we to find a character that is both gentle and high-spirited at the same time? After all, a gentle nature is the opposite of a spirited one. So if someone lacks either gentleness or spirit, he can't be a good guardian, yet it seems impossible to combine them. It follows that a good guardian cannot exist. This is where Socrates starts to you know, question 
this idea, can you create this elite attack force and make sure that it doesn't turn on you? Um, and then they go on further to discuss and at 375E to 376B, uh, you know, this is where they start to, you know, talk about this analogy to the pedigree dog, you know, he says, so you can see them in other animals too, but especially in the one to which we compared the guardian. For you know, of course, that a pedigree dog naturally has a character of this sort. He is gentle as can be to those he, he's used to and knows, but the opposite to those he doesn't know. When a dog sees someone it doesn't know, it gets angry before anything bad happens to it. But when it knows someone, it welcomes him, even if it has never received anything good from him. Haven't you ever wondered at that? Surely this is a refined quality in its nature and one that is truly philosophical because it judges anything it sees to be either a friend or an enemy on no other basis than that it knows what it is known, what is its own, and what is alien to it in terms of knowledge and ignorance. Uh, and, you know, then they go on to discuss, well, then you're going to have to train the guardian class to be philosophical and to understand this difference between uh, its, its own and the enemy. And really, this made me start to think again about the allegory of the cave that we talked about last time. So, you know, are, you, are we trying to create in this theoretical thought experiment, you know, of a, of a, of a theoretical city, are we trying to create what was presented in the allegory of a cave? Are we trying to create a projection of something that isn't real? And are we trying to get the guardians to believe in that projection? Uh, so I'll take uh, Moshe and then Jose and then Bill. Moshe? Yeah, just to go along with what you're saying, Jane, um, we don't have to go outside of this, uh, of this chapter itself in order to be able to raise the same question. Because Glaucon asks, um, uh, you know, he presents the case uh, of a person who uh, uh, appears to do just act, but then when you're not looking at him, he does unjust act, and he will either deny them or walk away from them or something like that. And and uh, he was saying, I mean, that goes back to the word of Gaiji thing, which is taking that to the extreme. But unless these uh, the guardians were complete automatons, uh, we would be uh, as a society having to raise them to accept something as real that really isn't, and, uh, and 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 depend upon their myopic knowledge of who is a friend and who is not, and not giving them the benefit of their own humanity, which might be to say, you know, if I can get away with a bad thing, uh, you know, I it's okay for me to do it. Or I can be appear to be just and, and you know uh, defend the city against the enemies and and be kind to my friends when I'm being watched, but when I'm on my own, I can be as mean to the people around the city as I, I, I as I want to be, which is uh, you know <coughs> might be realistic, unfortunately, or at least the grist of many dystopian novels. Indeed, yes. And, uh, you know, I, I think of some dystopian novels in relation to what they're talking here. And then, you know, some of the maybe dystopian situations that we're facing in the world now, but certainly what you you mentioned, you know, this, this idea of reputation, I think this is, you know, to, to, to be in unjust, but to have the reputation of being just, you know, and this is really the quote that we started with, uh, with today's uh, episode, 
that quote from Adamantus that, you know, how do we maintain, if we're, if we're going to be unjust, how do we maintain that appearance of being just? Because that would be the perfect injustice, wouldn't it? To be completely unjust as a person, but to have the reputation of a just person. And maybe we can think of some people in the world like that now, but, you know, it's, it's, it's this idea of, you know, is, is reputation that we, uh, that we hold people in, is that reputation actually the opposite of what they are? And then that gives us into this whole question of appearance versus reality. And again, that allegory of the cave that we, uh, that we talked about last time. So we'll go to Jose and then Bill. Yeah. Uh, about, about this, uh, this passage of, uh, that he compared, he kind of make this analogy with dogs and the guardians. Yes. Uh, I don't know if this is a translation. I think it's a little bit different. But what I interpret is that, uh, like the dogs, it looks like they 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 hate, they like knowledge. So this is why they don't attack when they know somebody, and they hate ignorance. This is why they attack when when somebody some stranger comes. And uh, and the 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 guardians they need some education in philosophy because they have to. They have to. They have to have knowledge. They they will they will like knowledge and they will hate ignorance. And besides, when they can, they want to identify real threats with uh, with no threats. So if they go to war, like a, they cannot just go to war for. They, they have to know when go to war. And um, this is one thing. And another thing is, uh, I believe I, I don't know if I'm mistaken, but uh, this um, this passage of the allegory of the cave. But it was in book seven, I think. It was uh, when he was in the, I think that that part was uh, talking about the education of the guardians. So this is, uh, I think, I think that was talking about the education of the guardian, how, how they go from, from being chained and having uh, like, uh, you know, all their knowledge, what in fears and, cha and shades and they discover the truth. And, and certainly they do investigate the, they talk about the education of the guardians. And I think we'll have a, a chance to look at some of the specific aspects of the guardians education, but, but you're right. I mean, it, it's, you know, it's a question of knowledge and I would just, um, you know, I, I would just point out here, you know, this, this part here that says, you know, that by using this analogy of the dog, you know, it says the dog will, will defend the owner, even if it has never received anything good from him. Um, and so maybe it's not absolute knowledge of everything of how the world works, but the guardian is to be given just enough knowledge in order for the guardian to be able to fulfill the role that the guardian was designed for. And I think we'll see that maybe in the next, uh, in our next episode, when we read that, what's called the so-called noble lie, uh, maybe that's an idea of just giving the guardian just enough knowledge, but not too much knowledge. Um, so Thank you for that. And we'll go to Bill. Um, I, I had a dog once. And um, it was a loving dog to us. We, you know, would always be there and cuddle us, etc. As long as we fed it well. However, when the postman came, it went nuts. It, it became a savage dog, like it wanted to tear him apart. But you know what? The postman was a wonderful man. We we knew him, but the dog didn't like him. So, so that's uh, 
problem with that dog analogy. You know, who who's a friend and who's a foe? You know, if we were if we are told by someone else that this is friend and this is foe, then that's a really poor poor way of looking at things. I think. Hmm. And um, yeah, that's a that's a really good analogy. I, because I remember when I was a when I was a kid, I had a newspaper route and I delivered newspapers and certainly terrified of those dogs that would uh, want to rip your hand off as you put the newspaper through the door. You know, it's, but it, it's true, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it was a good, I like that analogy. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting. The question is, how do we know who our friend is and who our enemy is? And I think they're suggesting at the end of this, uh, these, these selections at 376 B and C, uh, you know, this idea of giving the guardians some philosophy um, you know, how, and then they ask the question, how are they going to educate the guardian? Which then raises in my mind, who is going to educate the guardian? You know, who is so perfect in their knowledge that they can educate this class that has the power to destroy their own city as well as other cities? You know, it's, it's a question of, you know, how do we, if we, if we set ourselves up as having to educate these people, then how do we educate them? Which is a good, good question that we should ask. So, Thank you for that. We'll go. We'll go to Jose G. Yeah, just a, um, a quick comment about the the dog example that Bill was was mentioning. I, I also had a dog, and it seems common to all dogs that they would get enraged when the postman comes or approaches the house. And however, what I did was with my dog, I introduced the dog to the postman. Right. So I was outside, and um, the postman came along, and I. I brought them together and um, he was wagging his tail. However, the next time when the, the postman will approach the house, he will be excited with the same reaction, completely enraged. So all I'm suggesting is, is maybe a situational thing and it's a bit of this uh, ignorance versus knowledge, right? But it's more than the people, just a situation. I mean, the dog has the knowledge then when there's nobody else and somebody's approaching the house, it goes after it, but when he's in a friendly environment with others, he reacts differently. Just a, um, at least your comment on, on dogs. I like that thing, the idea of introducing uh, the dog to, to the supposed enemy might well change its attitude. And that's something that we can maybe consider as we continue to read the, um, the Republic is, you know, are they creating this artificial barrier around the city, you know, by setting up this elite attack force around it. And so they, they'd never have a chance to meet the, the supposed enemies, you know, and it's, it's a really interesting thought. Um, Bill, your ideas? Well, you know, this, this concept of the, the guard, guardians you know it applies to the present day with our police force <clears throat> who uh, sometimes you know reacts in a in a way that in a, in a, an extreme way and they don't sometimes you know there's not a lot of love shown for for the citizens <laughs> so um uh yeah i think you know Knowledge is part of it, and um, it's a big part of it, the guardians. Um, to be able to decide who is who is friend and who is who is foe, and apply um, uh, a legitimate amount of uh, 
force if necessary, but at a minimum, first try dialogue, like Socrates, possibly. <laughs> I I like that. That's uh, it's going to be actually just uh, you know you. I put this on the cover page of the notes that I posted on the shared drive, but I saw this article uh, about a week ago in not coincidentally the newspaper called the guardian, which I I read a lot. And I saw this little piece in the guardian about uh, the type of robots that are now being introduced uh, in Singapore to police undesirable behavior. So you mentioned police um, and so I've got here on the, the screen a picture of this article from The Guardian on October 6, uh, trial of robots to police undesirable behavior such as smoking or breaching social distancing rules. So they've got this cute little robot called Xavier who is rolling around the city, the streets of, the, of Singapore, uh, blasting warnings at people who are doing these things that are deemed to be bad. And so, you know, is this the... Is this a technological prototype of a guardian is what I've asked on the cover page here. And it's something that we might consider as, uh, as we read more of the Republic, you know, this is a, uh, maybe a real life example of, of a guardian. And certainly, you know, I, I don't think that this machine that is pictured in this photo here is necessarily capable of the philosophy that they're trying to uh, establish in the guardian. So, so thank you for that police analogy. Um, it is actually, we're, we're at the two hour mark and I just wanted to say, I think it's probably a good point to end, end here. Um, and so I do want to thank everybody for sharing and certainly have got so many great ideas and contributions today and many things to think about, you know, things that I hadn't thought about before. And, uh, you know, we'll get the podcast posted in about a week. And I think it's a real good chance to share these ideas, you know, as we continue to read more sections of, uh, of the Republic and, and in other dialogues as well, so that we can start, you know, continue just connecting all of these ideas. Um, and I wanted to uh, just remind folks that in two weeks, we'll have our next next session in two weeks uh, that we'll be looking at, uh, it's a bit of a longer reading. It's from 412B to 445E. And that kind of starts with the idea of the noble lie that is going to be given to the guardian class. So uh, let's keep in, in mind all of the good ideas that are, have been raised today. And um, let's look forward to our next session in two weeks. And so I want to thank again, those who participated today, including a number of new participants. It's great to have you here. And uh, we'll look forward to our next session in two weeks. And so I will end the recording in a minute, but I just want to uh, remind those who want to stay online, you're free to stay online and we'll host uh, what we call Plato's Cafe, which is just a casual half hour discussion on you know, Plato or philosophy in general. So you're welcome to, to stay online after I stop the recording right now. And so we'll see you hopefully in two weeks. 